Want to read unlimited fiction, articles, essays, satire, and poetry for just $5 a month? Go to medium.com. When you join for $5 a month, send an email to wordsfromtheriver at gmail.com with your Medium username and follow Laurie Nave Author on Facebook. You'll be entered into a drawing for a $50 Visa gift card or PayPal payout on January 1st. Welcome to our November episode of Final Friday Fiction on the Words from the River podcast. Today I'm hailing from South Georgia, where I've spent Thanksgiving with my family, and I don't think I'll eat for a week after all the food we had yesterday. I sure hope you enjoyed yours. Today I'll be reading flash fiction from two authors, along with an excerpt from my current work in progress, a crime novel called Path. I'll begin today by reading a piece of flash fiction by Lisa Tomey. Lisa writes fiction, poetry, and essays, and she's published a book of poetry called Heart Sounds, which is available on Amazon. George Johnson lived in an apartment community. He was walking through his parking lot to the swimming pool for his mid-afternoon swim. Not one to like seeing trash, he picked up an empty beer bottle and threw it away. Simple matter, one would say, really. Results? Cleaner parking lot and a happy walker who swam. Revert back to two hours before that time. The ambulance and police cruiser were at the same parking lot. George was not there, having been doing errands and such. Later that day, an investigator arrived at the lot and did some deeper research. George saw him, but other than curious, he didn't go check. He figured there was no point in getting in the way. At close to 10 p.m., George sat in the interrogation room at the police station, pegged as a suspect for the murder of Gregory Plymouth. George felt overwhelmed. "'Where were you this morning about 10 a.m., Mr. Johnson? Or may I call you George?' Investigator Busby asked George. "'George is fine. I was running errands. I got back about noon and decided to go swimming about two. Busby continued, "'Where did you go on your errands?' Um, I went to the hardware store, grocery store, to get some gas, and grabbed a sandwich, George calmly stated. You know, George, that this is a murder charge we have you on, yet you seem awfully calm about all this. I'm honestly confused. Do you care to share as to why? I mean, normally, someone would be protesting that they didn't commit a murder. No, I know I'm not guilty of any murder. So why should I get all worked up over nothing? George calmly replied. Without a word, Busby stormed out of the room. He shook his head when he saw his associate, Officer Clark. What in the world? I don't get this guy. All calm and cool. I'd be sweating like crazy. Do you think he's delusional? I don't get it. Officer Clark responded. I can give it a shot. Something is amiss. Did anybody check him for drugs? Busby shook his head no. Well, it may be too late, 
but we might want to check his blood. Busby started the paperwork for the screening. Hello, Mr. Johnson. Is it okay if I call you George? George nodded yes. I'm Officer Clark, but you can call me Jim. I understand they brought you in for a murder charge of a one Mr. Gregory Plymouth. Do you understand this charge? George nodded yes. Can you state that out loud for me, please? Yes, I'm under... I understand I'm being charged for the murder of Mr. Gregory Plymouth. And I have a question. Who is Gregory Plymouth? Gregory Plymouth lives inside your neighborhood, just the next building over. In fact, his apartment faces yours. Have you ever seen this man? Clark showed a photograph of the victim to George. He looks familiar, but I see people all the time. He's not anybody I know. And I have a question for you. Why would I be charged with murder? I've never even had a thought like this, ever. If you wonder why I'm not getting upset, my father told me to never raise my voice if I did nothing wrong. Clark responded, We have evidence that implicates you in the crime. What kind of evidence? We have your fingerprints all over an empty bottle we found in the trash. It also has the fingerprints of the victim. So, you had to have had contact with him. George's eyes opened wide, and then he let out a laugh. Clark jerked his head in surprise. <laughs> That's too funny. He must have been the one who left the empty bottle on the pavement. I picked it up and threw it in the trash. I do that kind of stuff all the time. People are so messy, and I can't stand trash all over the place. There have been days when I've taken a bag around and picked up, but if it's that bad, I usually call maintenance. They see me there all the time, even driving by and waving at me while I'm picking up trash, joking that I'm their assistant. Sometimes it upsets me, but I decided not to let it bother me. Can I ask you a question about this supposed murder? Sure. What do you need to know? How was this guy murdered? asked George. He was found beside his car. He was slumped over against the door as if he was trying to get in but lost his balance. There was no blood or anything like that. He was dead when the ambulance got there and possibly when he was found. Nobody detected a pulse. So how was this murder? There's no signs of anything other than being slumped over. Couldn't he have had a heart attack? Well, Clark hesitated, searching for the right words. We did a toxicology report, and he had ingested some kind of poison. I have to pull the report to get the name of the poison. That doesn't matter. The bottle has your prints all over it, along with the victim's. George asked the obvious. Where would you have gotten my prints? I've never been fingerprinted. Uh, well, except for when I was going to adopt a child many years ago, before I lost my wife. That's been a long time ago. I mean, about 20 years ago. She passed away shortly thereafter. I didn't think they were left in the database. Well, I did not murder a soul. I don't think such ways. What would have been my motive? Clark pondered for a moment, but he knew he didn't have much to go on. He was ready to release this guy. He had a warrant, and George's house was being searched. If there was nothing to link the poison, the most they could do was put George on watch. He couldn't hold George for much longer. He knew it would mean big trouble to hold an innocent man. Someone knocked on the door, and it was Busby. He asked Clark to step outside for a moment. 
Be right back, George, Busby stated. We have nothing to hold him. His apartment came out clean as could be. I'm not sure when I've seen anything as clean as his apartment. I mean, this guy must have happy maids on speed dial. There's nothing, I mean nothing, that we could find. I don't think a blood test will show anything either. It's just a waste of money to run one when all we're doing it for is to see why he's not reacting. He's one cool fish, I'll tell you that. Busby shook his head, after telling Clark all this, and then Clark had a thought. He's cool because he's innocent. Seems he has a real strong sense of honor to his father's example. Some people are just cut that way. I've seen this before and there's never been a case where there was a cause for concern. The toxicology report shows the poison that Plymouth drank. There's no link to Johnson. We have to let him go. We have to let him know that he's on watch and not to leave town. Busby finished and looked to Clark for agreement. They talked to the district attorney and they agreed to let Johnson go home. George Johnson left the office a free but suspected man. He went home and cleaned his apartment from end to end, making sure all the evidence from the search was gone. He sat down and pondered for a moment. Then he took off. He went to the storage unit he owned on the edge of town. In the unit was some bottled beer, a table, and a camera. George disposed of these items at the landfill. An empty bottle lay beside him on the seat of his car when he was found. I hope you enjoyed that. Now we're going to read a piece of flash fiction by Susan Brearley. Susan Brearley is a writer who writes fiction, satire, essays, personal self-help articles, and much more. The name of this flash fiction short story is Confrontation on the High Seas. It was gray and stormy, the kind of day that every pirate feared. The clouds were never-ending, there was no sky. The seas and the clouds melted into one large fishbowl of blue and gray. On a day like this, you did not know if the sun was even in the sky. You could not tell if you would ever see the sun again in your entire life. The large galleon ship that carried a full crew of thirty-five had set sail just days before, out of a busy port where they'd laid in supplies for their long journey across the ocean. The captain and the crew had spent very little time at port, taking on supplies. They'd recently stolen the ship, and only needed to stow away enough food and drink for their long journey across the seas to reach the island where they learned of a hidden treasure. The crew was promised that soon, very soon, there would be a reward for all their hard work. The current spell of bad weather was something that couldn't have been predicted. It came up suddenly. One minute there was sun and good wind, but within an hour this storm blew up and there was barely enough time to reef sails or secure personal belongings. The lookout in the eagle's nest saw the first signs of the storm and shouted to the captain, There's a weather patch ahead to starboard, Captain. Best batten down and ready the sails. But the wind blew in fast and the captain had a bit of drink that morning and then the unthinkable happened. Sails and lines started to pull and strain madly, and the first mate yelled, Captain, we need to move irons and drop the sails. It's a-coming up fast. The captain felt a twinge of excitement. This was what he lived for, 
the adventure of his will against the wind. Could he dance with her, the wind who was his bride, or would she overtake him and bury the ship and all its contents? He loved the thrill of this game. Captain, we need all hands on deck, now! The first mate yelled the order, but the missing crew did not make an appearance. The captain searched around. All hands on deck, he shouted. Still no additional crew made their presence known. Now the captain grew impatient, and as his face turned red and anger boiled in his blood, he stood up straight and started to pound his feet into the deck as he moved to the companionway. He looked below deck and saw some movement. Get up here, you scallywags! Are you drunken buzzards? Does you want to drown today and meet up with Davy Jones' locker? All hands on deck! The missing crew were below deck. They heard the captain's roar. They were sitting in a corner, holding a large ceramic vessel, and fearing for their lives. They heard the stomp, stomp, stomp of the captain's heavy footsteps as he moved below deck. The crew huddled closer, and they held fast to their vessel. The captain roared into the space where they were seated. What's wrong with you all? Did you not hear my command? Do you all want to walk the plank this very night? One of the fearful gathered up the courage to speak. Come, we've not been drinking at all, but you need to understand, we cannot live and work on rum alone. When we were in port, a kindly older woman took pity on our skinny butts and brought us this vessel. Inside, we found this. He opened the lid and tilted the vessel so that the captain could see inside. Captain, strength be in this vessel. Oatmeal raisin, chocolate chips, snickerdoodles, ginger snaps. Well, I'll be. The captain was not amused. Oh, come on, captain. Have a cookie. You'll feel so much better if you do. And that was the night. The mutiny over a cookie jar fed a whole crew of starving pirates. Crew and Cap mate the cookies, all of them in the jar. Then they all scurried up the decks, trimmed the sails, and rode that wind till she stopped blowing, which was just about the whole length of that ocean, till they sighted land. Enjoy your week of food. Have another cookie. This flash fiction was written as part of a challenge in honor of Thanksgiving, and I hope you enjoyed it. Although I can't imagine eating one more cookie, or piece of pie, or slice of turkey. But it was pretty funny, and you can check out more of Susan's writing when you look at the links on my blog post. We'll end today's final Friday fiction with an excerpt from a current work in progress called Path. In this scene... Celia, a journalist, is interviewing Natasha, who has been convicted of killing five people and is awaiting her execution on death row. There's a diner I like to go to for coffee very early in the morning, Natasha began, crushing her half-smoked cigarette onto the table. It's very quiet there and almost always empty. I'm not entirely sure how the owners stay in business, but they are a shy old couple and they don't follow Hollywood gossip or any other type of privacy invasion. So they never knew who I was. It was my private haven, and I went to great lengths to keep it that way. I can understand that, Celia said, nodding. I'm sure there was almost no place you could go and not be recognized and hounded. Exactly, 
Natasha pointed her unlit cigarette at Celia. This was very important to me. She waited for Celia to light it and then took a long drag before continuing. That is why I could not let anyone change things. And your first victim. He changed things, Celia finished Natasha's thought. It was more than that, really. Tom Hales, had he been a complete stranger, would have been easy enough to tolerate. I always dressed inconspicuously, and I never had my hair done or makeup on, so to most people I wouldn't have seemed to be myself. But Tom was a person from the past. Celia leaned forward slightly and rested her chin on her upturned palm. You already knew him? Oh, yes, Tasha waved the smoke around as she gestured. He attended the private high school that my father insisted I attend. He was two years older, but still, I knew him, and he knew me. Natasha's tone and slightly narrowed eyes betrayed her detached manner. And what did he think he knew? Celia asked. Smiling, Natasha flicked ash onto the floor. He thought I would worship him as the other girls did, and he thought I was naive. He asked me to a school dance, and I said yes. Of course, he was expelled before the dance actually took place. Expelled? Why? Before the dance, my father allowed me to meet him for a movie. He had a car, but father believed I was too young to ride with him. Tom had some cigarettes and a bottle of vodka and suggested we go driving instead. I had hoped until then that he might have an interest in me. But when he suggested we drive and the alcohol, I knew. I knew what he was. So he got you intoxicated and then he took advantage? He underestimated me, Natasha said. I had been sneaking a bit of father's vodka for years. I was never intoxicated, and he would probably say I humiliated him, the spoiled bastard. In return, he threatened to tell everyone that we had sex. <sighs> Natasha sighed. It was fortunate for me that the drugs were discovered in his locker on Monday. She smiled at Celia. <laughs> yes, very lucky, Celia smiled. Where did you get... Of course... No one ever really knew where the drugs came from. You know how impulsive teenagers can be. He was expelled, and he slinked off like a kicked dog. Until you saw him in the diner. He didn't notice me, so I began to watch him. He wore a suit that looked more expensive than it was. I noticed that he spoke to a wife on one phone and a mistress on another. He was the same as he had been. Of course, after several mornings he attempted to say hello. A man like this cannot help himself, still too stupid to remember me. But I knew that my sanctuary wasn't a sanctuary as long as he was there, and one morning he wouldn't be stupid. Celia watched as Natasha smoked in silence for a few minutes. She had met with her enough times now to understand the undercurrent of anger in her eyes. Natasha was still cool, of course, but the slight hardening around the corners and the way her fingers gripped the cigarette made it clear that she was still angry remembering Tom. Natasha would take her time telling the story, however, always the consummate actress. Celia had learned to wait through the silence rather than probing. I followed him several times. 
He was always on his phone, telling his mistress what he'd like to do to her, telling his wife why he couldn't be home for dinner. The parking garage where he kept his car was older, with no cameras and very little activity. It was easy to approach him and ask for a light. He never saw the gun. Yes, the gun, Celia noted. They never were able to trace it. No, I could thank my father for that. He knew many things from living in Russia during the Cold War. And you only used it once. Of course, to use the same gun again would connect people. Only an idiot would use the gun more than once, Natasha shrugged. I left the garage and went home. The clothing was washed and taken to one of those charity drop bins. I did what many have done with the gun. I tossed it into the river. Celia studied Natasha, looking for the anger she had seen earlier in the story. But it was gone. The calm was back. And what did you feel when you shot Tom Hales? I felt relieved, I suppose. My haven was a haven again. He wouldn't recognize me. And once they were done grieving, maybe his wife and mistress could find a better man. <laughs> Hopefully not the same one this time. So no emotion? No fear? No panic? No one saw me. There was no danger. I know. I should feel something. Most people would. Natasha leaned forward. Would you? <laughs> well, of course. Celia sputtered a bit, surprised by the question. Would you really? Or would you make sure you felt what you were supposed to feel? Would you manufacture some sort of emotion because, as you said, any normal person would feel something? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Word from the Rivers, Final Friday Fiction. Next week, we'll be talking with Helen Cassidy Page, an author who's written quite a few books in several genres and was very entertaining and interesting to talk to. Thanks again for listening to the Words from the River podcast, and remember, you can find out more about all the writers that we feature here by going to wordsfromtheriver.com. Don't forget, if you join Medium and send an email with your username to wordsfromtheriver at gmail.com, you'll be entered into the drawing for a $50 gift card on January 1st. Thanks again, and have a great weekend. Probably